Welcome to the Washington Union Alliance Church Podcast, an archive of our recorded sermons. We're a Christian and Missionary Alliance Church located in Newcastle, Pennsylvania. For more information, go to wuac.org. Martin Lloyd-Jones is a, is a preacher, and he uh, is a, uh, I don't know exactly what time period, I can't recall, but he says, our greatest need is to recapture the New Testament teaching concerning the church. If only we could see ourselves in terms of it, we would realize that we are the most privileged people on earth and that there is nothing to be compared with being a Christian and a member of the mystical body of Christ. I really like that quote. really like that. And we, what we've done is we've been clarifying and, and like kind of honing in on what it means to truly be the church and a local church and our purpose and function as to why we do what we do, why, why do we do, what are the distinctives of the local church, what it really means to be the church in this particular context. And this is just a kind of a funny story to start us. There was a preacher that was in Atlanta, Georgia a few years ago and noticed in the restaurant section of the Yellow Pages an entry for the place called Church of God Grill. The peculiar name aroused his curiosity, and he dialed the number. And a man answered with a cheery, Hello, Church of God Grill. And the preacher asked how the restaurant had been given, how that restaurant had been given such an unusual name. And the man said, Well, we had a little mission down here, and we started selling chicken dinners after church on Sunday to pay the bills. Well, people liked the chicken, and they did such a, we did such a good job with the business that eventually we cut back on the church service. After a while, we just closed down the church altogether and just kept serving chicken dinners. We kept the name we started with, and that's the Church of God Grill. So that's a little funny story to start us off that's kind of, kind of derailing from the purpose of the church. Um, or the story about Grace Davidson. And Grace Davidson took her four-year-old granddaughter to church, to big church for the very first time, and she sat quietly taking in every aspect of the service, and her attentive curiosity stayed in check until the pastoral prayer. The pastor said, we thank you, Lord, for your presence. And the little girl's eyes flew open, and she whispered to her grandmother, Granny, we're going to get presents. <laughs> yeah. We begin, we've been looking at what this means to be the church, what it means to be the local church, focusing on key four pillars, what it means to be the church of Jesus Christ. And I know if you're here, um, if you're here today, and maybe if you're not a part of this local church family, I just want to say I hope you'll lean into this. Um, we think this church is pretty great, and I do too. I, but I believe that life-giving churches, um, life-giving churches are the bedrocks of our communities and in families in our lives, and because God is alive and in the midst of them. There is an undeniable link between being filled with the Spirit of God and then being in community. And like, I believe, firmly believe that growing and sustainable life-giving churches are the hope of the world and including in communities such as ours. Communities like Newcastle and in Union Township such as ours are the hope of the world. Um, and I know that churches that, that believe and that raise up and that love God and love their neighbors and reach the next generation are the, are the churches that God is going to bless. And so I pray that maybe this will help you answer some of those questions. Maybe it's just kind of overlaps some of these questions that you have. Um, and so if you're new or visiting, don't have a home church, I just want to affirm that this church is uh, filled with grace-filled people. 
And I just want to affirm that, that this is a really a great church. And I want you to know that we are also not perfect. There are areas that definitely need to be fine-tuned for the sake of this church and then in the next 30 years of this church. All of these are kind of pillars of what it means to be the church, and I hope it clarifies that as well. And so what I hope today is to give some practical implications for what it means to be the body of Christ and what that might have to say about being filled, being filled with the Spirit. You see, what we said last week is that God has called each and every one of us into a life of hope. Um, this this scripture we read last week was from the book of Ephesians, and Ephesians was written by a man named Paul, who's a former murderer of Christians and turned a Christian, um, and then he experienced like this transformation, and he uh, went into this third largest city of the known world called Ephesus, and at that time, um, the church was very young, um, trying to get off the ground, and it's here, Paul, at that, that juncture in Ephesians, prays for these Christians and asks that Jesus would indwell, the good news about Jesus would indwell deep within their lives, and that they would remember the things that God has done for them. And God has done the same for each and every single one of us here in this room, literally called us to a life with him. You see, we also said this last week about being the body, that experiencing the fullness of Jesus can't be done outside the church. And he says that the emptiness that we may be feeling uh, can be filled in part of being a part of Christ's church. It means that if Christ, it says he's the head of the church, and if he's the head and we're his body, it means that you're needed in the body. God desires you and I to be a part of his family and his church, and all the meaning and significance and relationships are found, and it's Jesus that says we are his body with all different functions and gifts. You have gifts that are very unique to the makeup that make up the church. And we realize that our bodies are not just simply a bunch of loose parts, but all one body attached, all one body together, um, that all of our parts make up one body. And there's this living connection that you receive and I receive as being a part of Christ's body. God created you. You're not an accident. And it's the church where you read from God's word and hear from it and respond in prayer. And it's the church um, that is filled with the presence of God. And that we'd be a people who are filled then. Filled and then we go and are filled. Yet we're separated from God because of sin. And so we're looking at the church today about being what it means to truly be set apart. We know that this, this is a really good quote, that even from the onset, God's plan for reaching the world has been to create a people distinct from the world who would then minister to and then reach the world. You see, God's plan has always been to choose a people and then choose that people and then that people be set apart for the sake of the world. This is done through people. This has been from the beginning. God has chosen people um, and then has set them apart for the sake of the world around them. So God in Genesis 12, God calls a man named Abraham and Abraham was to be a man of faith and God promised him that he and his family, that they would be a blessing to the nations, that he, among all the different types of people groups at the time, that God chose Abraham and his family to be the family and then from his offspring would then be a blessing to all the nations. And so in Genesis 12, it says, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. This is Genesis 12. And it was just not to just be a people who just simply exist, but there are people who are given very specific commands as to how to live in their society. And if you look through any of your Old Testament, you're going to come across a lot of laws and very specific things 
in which this community is supposed to live apart of, amongst all the other people groups at the time. So it's always been a group of people that God has called to live differently as well. And so sometimes that concept of being like set apart, or maybe you've heard the whole word holiness gets lost sometimes because we are also on mission, which on mission all kind of intertwined there. Um, but mission and morality are not two separate categories. And we have to look at our own heart when we look in the midst of being a missionary, in the midst of mission. And N.T. Wright very, very plainly says it like this, that God's intention to bless the nations is inseparable from God's ethical demands on the people he has created to be the agent of that blessing. And he says, an immoral church has nothing to say to an immoral world. And it's true. Our own sinful heart is the frontier of any mission. Just as, just as important as disciples, it is ensuring that our heart be transformed and continually be made new in the image of Christ. And for him to remake our hearts. And it's not to say to be perfect. It's not saying that, to be perfect. Or to do anything with making disciples. It, it, we, have to, we have to be discipled in order to make disciples and allow him to do that. And it's also, though, it's not the point of the church to be a country club. We don't puff ourselves up in a boastful way or we're in a better, we're better than you kind of way. We ought not to be isolated from the world and certainly not called to be a church that's doors are closed or church that's closed off from the world. We are called to be a blessing and part of that blessing is to show people what it means to really live as a part of the kingdom of God. And today we're going to a passage in the New Testament. It's toward the latter half of your Bible. It's in Second, I'm sorry, First Peter. Um, and I just want to kind of give a little overview of, of this book in First Peter. It's on 857 of the Bible in front of you if you want to go there as a hard copy or it's going to be on the screen here in a second. But I just kind of want to give you what we're doing and why, why we're opening up this book and what this book is about and this particular letter in the context of the Bible. Um, this was written, uh, most people believe, by a man named Peter. Uh, and Peter uh, is writing this letter from Rome and he's writing to Christians in what is modern-day Turkey. Um, and he's writing this letter to these Christians in modern-day Turkey, going through very intense suffering, very intense pain, very intense time period where the church was marginalized. Um, and the Christians there were very few, um, relatively small. The church there was very small on that day. And so Peter's writing to encourage this church um, who was undergoing some very intense scrutiny. Um, in fact, uh, the persecution that they probably would have been experiencing would have been from the emperor Nero, who would place believers in Jesus in the Colosseum and then uh, to be torn apart by lions. Um, he, and then, so Peter and Paul's believers, um, I'm sorry, no, Nero and Paul's believers, and puts them on stakes and burns them for human torches to light up his evening parties. And that was kind of the context of what Peter is writing to here. You see what the, the kind of the overview of this is that Peter is longing for these Christians to live well as the people of God in a very complex world. And he wants these Christians to know that much like Abraham and much like the Israelite family in the Old Testament, that they were chosen by God and a lot of times the world rejects that. And a lot of times the world rejects Christianity. Oftentimes you read the Bible at arm's length or with skepticism. 
but he's writing to real people and not cardboard cutouts like we saw during the height of COVID, like when you went to the sporting event. Like he's writing to real people um, and real people living in this time period. Um, the theme of suffering shows up every chapter of First Peter, and it's, but this letter is also packed with hope, a lot of hope in this, in this uh, particular letter as well. Um, and so one commentator notes that the grace that already fills Christians with joy will be brought to them fully at the appearing of Jesus Christ. The Lord, whom they love but have not seen, they will see and adore, knowing well the doom and darkness from which they have, were delivered. The new people of God sing His praises, and their hallelujahs ring from their assemblies and their homes, even from prison cells, where the fear of God has set them free from the fear of man. Their witness is a witness of praise. And they're nourished by the unfailing word of God. They taste already the goodness of their Savior. The true grace of God has called them to his glory. Everything, even their sufferings, will serve his purposes who redeem them at such a price as that. So we at this church, we value the preaching and teaching of the scriptures. And I pray that you would find a church that does the exact same thing. That preaches and teaches the scriptures faithfully. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1-3. through 3. Read like this. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of any kind. Like newborn babies, crave spiritual milk so that, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. Now that you have tasted that the Lord is what? Is good. Is good. This is essentially Peter. Peter is saying, sometimes we don't have an appetite because we have been eating the wrong things. And I know what Peter's getting at here very, very well with this milk analogy, <laughs> uh, with these infants craving milk. I know exactly where he's getting to this. It's an appetite that we must have, much like Gwen has when she's very, very hungry for God's word. Um, any delay in feeding her, it brings about a very powerful reaction from her. Any delay from that brings about a very very powerful reaction. She has to have milk in order to live at a very, very young age. Um, I know that she frequently longs for milk. I know she frequently eagerly longs for milk, and I also means, um, and it also means this. We ought to seek after the very things that nourish the church, that nourish for the church and Christian community in its growth. Like the things that nourish the church, the kind of the solid foundations that build on it, the knowledge of God, prayer, instruction in the gospel, faithful obedience, and hearing God's word. Um, church, we must yearn for spiritual nourishment and crave for it. We must yearn for it and crave for it. And it also means this, that if even if we're young in faith or old in faith, we must have an infant's desperate need for basic nourishment in the gospel, in God's word. Yet when Peter warns these Christians to, these, he's writing this to the church, to Christians, he's warning these Christians to lay aside certain attitudes of the heart that hinder our appetite and spiritual growth. Malice is wickedness in general, and guile is craftiness using devious words and actions to get what we want. Envy is a result of ill will and results in evil speaking, conversations that tear the other person down. Church, far too often these conversations happen in our own Christian circles. Far too often. The verb there, crave, has the same sense of longing for God, which suggests a very intense personal desire. 
And that same word is used in Psalm 42.1, which reads this, As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. Peter's writing this to the church at the time. And if we stop feeding on the word, we stop growing. And we stop tasting the grace that we had in Jesus. The writer of the Hebrews says in verse, chapter 12, verse 1, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so very easily entangles. And that's Hebrews 12, 1. To kind of illustrate this, there's a story um, from, uh, from Jules Verne, his, the novel, The Mysterious Island. And he tells of five men who escaped a Civil War prison camp by hijacking a hot air balloon. And as they rise into the air, they realize that the wind is carrying them over the ocean. And so watching their homeland disappear on the horizon, they wonder how much longer the balloon can stay afloat. So as the hours pass and the surface of the ocean draws closer, the men decide that they must cast overboard some of the weight, for they had no way to heat the hot air balloon. And shoes and overcoats and weapons are reluctantly discarded, and the uncomfortable aviators feel their balloon rise but only temporarily. And soon they find themselves dangerously close to the waves again, so they toss their food. Better to be high and hungry than down on a full belly. Unfortunately, this too is only a temporary solution. And the craft again threatens to lower the men into the sea. And one man has an idea. They can tie the ropes that hold the passenger car and sit on those ropes. Then they can cut away the basket underneath them. And as they sever the very thing that they had been standing on, it drops into the ocean and then the balloon rises. Not a minute too soon, they spot land. Eager to stand on the terra firma again, the five jump into the water and then they swim to the island. They live because they're spared, because they were able to discern the difference between what really was needed and what was not necessarily needed. And the necessities they once thought they couldn't live without are the very weights that also cost them their lives. Can I say that again? The necessities that they thought they couldn't live were the very weights that almost cost them their lives. Sin so easily entangles and so hinders a relationship to God. Picking up in verse 4 of 1 Peter, it says this, As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but also chosen by God and precious to him, You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual what? House to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices to God through Jesus Christ. And for in the scriptures it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who to believe, this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And the stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen what? A royal what? Priesthood. A holy, what's that? Nation. God's special possession. That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of, what's that word? darkness and into his wonderful light once you were not a people but now you are the people of God once you have not received mercy but now you have received mercy that was through verse I read through all of them but we're going to get back to verse 9 and 10 for the first eight for the moment I can't help but think of this verse 
And these, when I read these passages, I can't help but think about our brothers and sisters in Ukraine who are gathering for worship and hearing the sound of bombs and fighter jets overhead, unsure of whether their building might be coming down in heaps. In a moment's notice, churches that are gathering right now in Ukraine may be not sure of whether their church is going to survive. I often think about how those verses, the living stone, the cornerstone, the people of God, I wonder how that would be read this morning in a Ukrainian church where perhaps tomorrow isn't promised. Perhaps tomorrow isn't promised. Maybe their loved ones, they're not sure whether that's going to happen again. Where maybe eternity is closer than they think. And Peter likes, likens this church to actual architecture. Like not just hard stones, but living stones. Stones that become a spiritual house. And in our modern context, we think about church that, where we, that I conceive of fit in terms of how a church fits us. Sometimes we wonder, does the per- worship and preaching fit well with our personality and preference? And it puts the burden on the church to adapt or perform to our liking. We should commit to a church for one where we will be changed to better represent Christ. Sometimes, what if we have it backwards? What if the biblical approach is actually that we should fit ourselves into the life and the mission of the local church, adapting ourselves to the family and filling gaps where needed, even if it means that we are the ones that have to change? The image of the people of God is that we are stones being built together in a dwelling place. Not one big piece of stone, but many stones interlocked and then fortified together. It's not as if stones lose their individuality or their unique textures or shapes. It's not as if that happens. And the image is not one of identical bricks or prefab concrete blocks. It's that only together do individual stones achieve the structural purpose of becoming the household of God. And similarly, and together, our unique shapes complement each other into more a structurally sound building. You catch my drift with that. One commentator says this about verse 4. It says that as you continually come to Christ in initial faith and then in worship and prayer, you yourselves are being built into a spiritual house. So as we continue to keep coming and as we continue to keep worshiping and seeking and praying, and none of what you do is in vain. There is no worship service or no prayer gathering that is not done in vain. Like, it matters. No worship service, no matter how big or small, no prayer meeting, that's maybe two or three people. There's nothing that's done because that's where God is. God happens in those places. I long for that, and I'm, and I'm praying to see these pews filled again, to see all of these pews filled again. Amen? Amen. But only, it's only together do individual stones achieve the structural purpose of becoming the household of God. Our unique shapes complement each other in that area. So as we continue to keep coming, um, no worship gathering is, done, is, is not ever unimportant None of what you do is in vain. There's a purpose to it, you being here and the gathering here. Always. And we come to a place that will never perish. We are living stones. It's the body that makes us a living stone. 
ordinary stones, this church, at some point in the whenever, God comes back, will pass away. Brick and mortar will pass away. Our homes, our retirement plans, our SUVs and our iPhones, our Androids, our wallets, everything will pass away and what will remain? The church with Jesus Christ forever. During Jesus' ministry, there's a man named Peter and Peter's a disciple of Jesus. Jesus never gives up on him at every turn. So Peter knows a little thing or two about rocks and stones. And he says, Jesus says this to Peter in Matthew 16, 18. He says, and I will tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. The gates of Hades will not prevail against Christ's church. Peter knows something about himself and he knows something about who God is. Even though he's had, a, had a quite a number of shortcomings, it's Jesus who is greater than that. It's he who is in me that is greater than the world. Christ in you, the hope of glory. It was he who was no sin, who became sin for us. Salvation is found in no other way but through Jesus. And Peter knows a thing or two about that. He says this in chapter 2, verse 9 and 10. says, but you are a chosen, we'll read it again, but you are a chosen what? People, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful, what's the word there? Light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy again. All of these privileges, chosen people, priesthood, all of these privileges, all these things reveal to them one responsibility, and that is revealing the praises of God to a very lost world. The verb there that to show forth means to tell about or to advertise because the world is in the dark. People do not know the excellencies of God, but they should see them in our lives. Each citizen of heaven is a living advertisement for the virtues of God and the blessings of the Christian life. Our lives should radiate that marvelous light into which God has graciously called each of us. We need reminded, just like the Israelites in the Old Testament, that if it weren't for mercy, we would be on our way to eternal judgment. If it weren't for mercy, we'd be all on our way to eternal judgment. But God reminded Israel many times he delivered them from the bondage of Egypt that they might glorify and serve him, but the nation soon forgot and the people then drifted back into their sinful ways. It happened all the time in the Old Testament. You see, we are chosen people because of his mercy, not because we are inherently more special and it behooves us to be faithful to him because of mercy. It was so, so important. It's so important to the church to remain faithful to God and to each other. And unity is also very essential in this. Unity is essential in the body of Christ. Unity does not mean agreeing on every single thing because that is just not life or human, human relationships as well. Unity does not mean that, but it means staying true and committed to God and committed to the mission of the church and committed to the living stones that are around us that make up this church. If I could just have a, a, a pastoral word here. In what ways might we need to throw off things? The sin so easily entangles. What things do we need to throw off or consider cutting out that we indulge in our lives? I mean, to really take inventory of this, church, what kinds of things that we might be indulging 
that are not too good for us. The kinds of things that are telling us about who we are, the things that we're indulging and in, in listening to or watching that we might need to reevaluate in order for us to more, walk fully more with Jesus. What things need to look at in our lives that we may consciously know we're doing, but in the, we may not consciously know we're doing them, but in the end are not contributing to our spiritual life or life in general? What about living in a complex world? What confidence does this have, this scripture have, living in an increasingly more and more complex and chaotic world? What about the church? Because we read in the scriptures that the church is the bride of Christ. We read that it's a family. We read that it's living stones. We read that the church is a pillar of the truth. We read that it's the body of Christ. All these things, and we know that oftentimes, very oftentimes, the church is very ordinary. Is it not? Just very ordinary right? God sees us through those lenses, though, that the bride of Christ, the pillar of truth, the family, the living stones, royal priesthood, a holy nation. God sees us through that. You see, week after week, God sees us in that way. The week after week, the decadent church potlucks, the sometimes slightly off-key singing, the awkward high-fives, in the, in the lobby sometimes, or the awkward handshakes. We don't know whether to do that, handshake or hug, or all, all the things. The nursery cries, the diaper changes, the differing parenting styles and the diverse personalities, it's just what it means to be the church. And God sees it all as this wonderful blessing to him, as his very bride, all very ordinary, all very, very ordinary, but yet special and chosen as the church body is supposed to be. Um, there's an author named Megan Hill. And she writes this little book, Learning to Love the Local Church, and tells a story about how around the corner where she lives, that there's a house for sale. And in bold green letters, the, this house for sale, on this, on this sign, bold green letters, can't miss it. It says, I'm gorgeous inside, <laughs> okay? Even though the outside is just very, very ordinary. In fact, she says it's a 70s style ranch. But she says that the sign encourages me that there is something way more beautiful and more valuable about this seemingly ho-hum house than I can appreciate from the curb. The local church is sometimes like that house. Sometimes it can feel like we're just a bunch of ordinary people, young and old, male and female, single and married. And even in the eyes of the world, it can seem very insignificant. But in God's economy, we are more than simply a collection of people. But all of it, all the mundaneness and all the communion cup spills and the awkward high fives and the like or hugs are exactly what it means to be a community set apart. Exactly what it means, chosen belonging. And it's that community that Jesus affirms through Peter that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That when the winds grow fierce and when we go frustrated or when we want things to happen sooner than later, all of that makes up the local church in all of its fullness. That God sees it all through his eyes. The bride, the pillar, the family. That all of it, the communion cup spills. The the decadent potlucks that we have at this church. (laughs) 
God sees it all as his chosen people, royal priesthood, holy nation. So to close, this is kind of the, this is kind of the idea here that Peter is getting at. He says this in 1 Peter, kind of, let's just put this in modern day terms. This is it. Let's read it together, including the brackets. It says, but you, W-A-C, are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of Him to the city of Newcastle, who called you, W-U-A-C, out of darkness and into His wonderful light. Amen? Amen. If you have your communion cup, uh, we've got that. We're going to take communion, Lord's Supper together.